0: You know, we are all someone's child. That is a commonality that we all share. You can't enter the world outside of that fact. Some woman put her life on the line to give you life. A man and a woman, in the best case scenario, sacrifice their youth to form you as a human being. Each and every one of us has as a commonality that we are someone's child. Even if that, those people that we call parents weren't our birth parents, each and every one of us are known by at least someone at one time as their child. And each and every one of us can point to someone, even if they aren't biologically so, someone that we can call a parent. To be someone's child is to have that parental figure imprint something deep and profound upon us. Even if that, and by that I I don't mean DNA necessarily, although that does matter. Rather, our parents give something of their very being to us. Many of you are feeling that right now, that you're giving the essence of your being, your energy, your time, your thoughtfulness, your life. For your child. And in many ways, when that person gives to us themselves, they imprint some of themselves upon us. That who we are is largely built upon and contingent upon those we call mother or father. Our identities are not formed in a vacuum, rather for good and so often for bad, We are formed as creatures by those that we call mother, by those that we call father, and we form those that we call child. This is a commonality that we share as human creatures. This is what it means to be a human being. As we continue in the second week of our sermon series through what it means to be a disciple, I'd like to continue in this theme. If you remember, we began just last week, we occasionally about once a year do a thematic sermon series. And right now, as we're growing exponentially, I wanna bring us back to the basics. What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to grow more into the image and likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ? And so we're gonna divide it into two sections. In the first section, I wanna look at the identity of the disciple. And how we've talked about that thus far is the identity of the beloved Fundamentally, to be a disciple is to be one that is called beloved by our Lord, by our Father in heaven. And I gave a brief definition last week that's going to guide our sermon series. To have our identity as the beloved is to know that we are a chosen child of God, blessed, broken, resurrected, and fed. To have our identity grounded as the beloved of God is to know that we are a chosen Child of God, blessed, broken, resurrected, and fed. And last week, we looked at that very first word, chosen. And we looked at the doctrine of election. It's this great doctrine of God's grace, that outside of his grace to choose to bring us into life, just as a child cannot choose to be born, we cannot choose to be born again. It is purely the grace of our God who takes us out of death and brings us into life. The life of discipleship begins, is sustained by, and culminates in the grace of God. And this week, I want to look at the next couple of words, child of God. What does it mean to have our identity as the beloved rooted in the reality that we are God's child? What does that mean? What difference does that make? How does that change us fundamentally? So I want to just look at two things today. First, I want to look at the doctrine of new birth. That each and every one of us, when we engage in saving faith in Jesus Christ, are born again. What does it mean to be born again and what difference does it make? And then second, I want to look at the change in relationship that we have with God. Many of you know my, my favorite theologian, the guy I'm writing my doctorate on, is this guy named John Calvin. A lot of people don't like him because they don't read him, um, but that's why they don't like him. But, you know, Calvin, he, he said the very heart of the gospel is the reality that in Christ Jesus, you no longer see God as judge, but you see him as loving father. And I want to look at how that dynamic between us as child and God as father changes To see God is fundamentally our place of comfort. As children, we are all seeking comfort. As adults, which are just grown children, we are all seeking comfort. And the fundamental place that we find the comfort that we are all longing for is in the presence of our beloved Father. So if you would, turn with me to John 3, verses one through nine. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You know, I don't hear that many people talking these days about being born again quite as much as I did when I was younger. Have you ever noticed that? Our evangelical luminaries, who most of their light is dimming, to be frank, but many of them, they don't talk about being born again anymore. It used to be when you would talk about your politician, you would say, well, he's a good church-going guy or gal, but I'm not sure they're born again, right? When we would talk about our testimony, when I was a young person, we would talk about the moment we were born again, When I did homeless ministry, as some of you know, when Laura and I first moved to Colorado for years, where I learned how to preach, where I learned how to disciple, where I learned all the things that were teaching Andrew and Kyle and Carrie and all these others, it was with the homeless of Englewood. And the notion of being born again was a palpable reality. Because so many of our flock and my brothers and sisters and my friends, they were caught In the web of sin. And they knew firsthand that they needed to restart. They knew firsthand that they needed a hard break with the past. Our worship leader used to be everybody's drug dealer, right? Um, You know, a bunch of our, one of our, there were prostitutes, dealers, uh, crooks of all different kinds, right? And what they knew fundamentally was I need a break with what was behind me. And I need to move ahead with what is to come. And the only way for that to happen is a supernatural intervention by God. For me to become someone completely different. For me to be born again and made new. You know, this idea of being born again that Jesus so beautifully preaches to Nicodemus. It's rooted in, in this broader doctrine called Regeneration. Regeneration, to regenerate, to give life again. And this idea that we can be regenerated by the Holy Spirit so that our wills are changed, our minds are changed, our actions are changed. We can cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ and have that be the fundamental reality of our lives. That can only happen when God miraculously gives us a new life probably the most beautiful passage that expresses this reality is 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 17. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We used to preach this one a lot for those that really had a past, and I think you all need to hear it just as much. From now on, we therefore regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What does that say? Our identities are not grounded in who we once were. Our identities are not grounded in being children of wrath. Our identities are not fundamentally characterized by our sinfulness, but in God's grace to bring about a new creation within us. And that message is for each and every one of us. But it's interesting. Jesus actually takes this doctrine of new creation a step further. Because you can be a part of the new creation and still keep God at arm's length right? I want to be part of the new creation. Give me a seat in the back, right? Although those were the primos. I grew up Presbyterian. That's the seats where the real people sat, you know, the back row, never the front row. But you know, the whole idea, I, I can be part of this new creation, but I'll be a spider in a corner. I'll catch some flies here and there, but just, just, you know, you do your thing over there, God, and I'll be over here. But that's not, that's not permitted, Rather, what we saw in our gospel reading today is that to be a part of the new creation is to be born again into the very family of God. God takes those who are far away and brings them as near as they can possibly get, so they are called his children. When you are born again, you are born again into the royal family of the kingdom of God. In John 1, we see this in 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We're talking about having our identity grounded as the beloved. And that is fundamentally revealed through this image of being born again into the very family of God, so that God is no longer judge, he's no longer distant, but he's Abba Father. You know, I've talked with you all about this before, and I'm going to keep talking about it with you until you start believing it, is that, you know, most of our identities are formed by the bonds that we form with others, right? We are inherently relational creatures, It's what it means to be a contingent being. It's what it means to be a person like you and myself. And we could go on and on about all the philosophers and we could sound smart talking about that, but we won't, right? Think about it like this. And I've shared this with you. A baby, a newborn baby, looks into their mother's eyes for eight hours a day. Why do they do that? Why is that built into us as creatures? Because that baby is asking more questions as its neurons are firing that could ever hope of understanding. And what that baby is asking is, who are we, mom? Who are we? A baby doesn't ask, who am I? A baby doesn't have a notion of I for quite some time. A baby in its early childhood development is gonna ask, who are we? Which means the identity of the mother is going to regulate the emotions the joys, the sorrows, the feelings of shame or guilt or pleasure and delight in their child. And for the rest of our lives, that's what we're gonna do. We look to those that we are near to to say, who am I? What is my identity here? And the greatest wounds that we feel are when those who we are the most intimately bonded with whether that's a parent or a sibling or a spouse, when those relationships are broken. And the hope of the gospel is for God to say, I will never break that relationship with you. I'm never going to turn my face away from you. I'm never going to give up on you. I'm never gonna say this is the straw that broke the camel's back. My face won't turn away. I've thought about it before, but have you ever noticed You know, when a a prisoner is executed, often there are people that are permitted to watch and there are those that have had a crime perpetrated against their families, but there's also very often the parent of the perpetrator. And what is the heart of the parent? Even to the last moment to say, Give him another shot. It's not too late, and that is God's posture always to you, in Christ Jesus. That it is never too late. That His gaze will never turn away. You know, it was interesting providentially. We had our national church planting conference this past week here in Denver, and uh, we had this guy Kurt Thompson come and speak. Has anyone heard of Kurt Thompson? Kurt Thompson, right? Yeah, Kurt Thompson. He's kind of like Jim Wilder. They're talking about, you know, basically uh, bonding, um, attachment theory, and how it actually really beautifully maps onto Christian theology, particularly Trinitarian theology, which, you know, that's kind of captured my imagination for, for quite some time because it's, it just makes so much sense. Um, but he had a group of priests, and, you know, the, the church planners are the ones that are kind of the, the bros, so let's go get it kind of guys. And uh, clearly, I'm, a, I'm such a bro, um, <laughs> but uh, he had everybody do something. It was just, it was really profound. He, he said, I, I, you know, a baby walk comes into the world n- with this posture and no one taught them this posture, right? No one taught a baby to say, lift your arms up and say, dad, mom, pick me up. They just do it. They know that that's what they do as children, Right? And then he, he challenged us to think, what is the essence of the new heavens and the new earth? It's what the theologians call the beatific vision. Do you know what the beatific vision is? The beautiful vision where we get to behold the face of God in Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons why we hold our hands up in worship is the same reason why a child holds their hands up to their mom. Or their dad because they're looking at the recognition that this is the place where my identity is grounded this is the relational connection that makes me me and the hope of everlasting life is you get to have that bond with the father unveiled forever When I was in seminary, I heard a lot of dumb things, but the dumbest thing I ever heard in seminary was, sorry, Doug, not from Doug, not from Doug. The one was, man, I was taught that that basically heaven was just one long worship service. Won't that be boring? No, it won't be boring because the glory of God never gets boring. To look at God's face, is the place where our identity is so grounded and we behold a beauty and glory that never ends. This is what it means to be a child of God, to have the face of God look upon us and make us who we are. And that face promises to never turn away. Now, I'd like to look at something. And what difference this makes here on earth right now? Turn with me to Jeremiah 31. I'd like to look at how God as Father is actually rooted in the Old Testament, even though it takes flight in the New Testament. Look at me, Jeremiah 31. At that time declares the Lord, I'll be the God of all the clans of Israel and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day. When watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim, arise and let us go to Zion to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord God, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise the shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give thanks or praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman, and she who is in labor together A great company, they shall return here. With weeping, they shall come. And with pleas for mercy, I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. What do we see here? Israel's in the Babylonian captivity, and God says, you won't be weeping forever. This grief won't last in eternity. I will redeem you. We see a prefigurement of God's fatherhood, but we know that because we are united to the one true son, Jesus Christ, this fatherhood takes flight in the New Testament. And we see a beautiful image of what difference it makes in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5. If you would turn with me there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. What do we see here? How is God described? He's the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. What is comfort? Why do we seek comfort? Comfort is where we go to find emotional regulation, right? If we feel unbalanced in our heart, we go somewhere to find a wholeness, a peace in our being. We go someplace to find comfort. Now, when we're a child, so often, what do we do? We don't know how to emotionally regulate ourselves. We haven't learned that skill yet. So what do we do? We go to mom or dad for emotional regulation. We're afraid in the dark, so what do we do? We run to mom or dad. Uh, We're angry, so what do we do? We act out, so mom or dad's presence comes to us to bring us back to a place of peace. We feel ashamed, so what do we do? We crawl into our parents' arms so that we can know that our shame doesn't define us. And I don't know about you, But my worst parenting moments are when I confuse the need for discipline with the need for comfort. Because more often than not, when my child is acting out, they're actually seeking comfort and I lead with discipline and correction. Now, it's interesting. I am not saying that God does not discipline us. Hebrews 12 says that if he's a good dad, he's going to discipline us. But what I'm also saying is that God's primary engagement with us as disciples is that he is the one that brings us comfort in the midst of our affliction. He is the one that says, come to my arms when you feel that storm brewing in your heart. Come to my arms when you feel completely off balance and the world is upside down. And yet so often, what do we do as Christians? we go other places. We go to people or to things or to actions to find comfort in some semblance of wholeness. If we feel that our our life is spiraling out of control, we're stressed and afraid, so often what do we do? We go to drink or other things that intoxicate us to try to feel like we can get it back under control. And what is that? That's just a comfort, and it always lets you down. Or when we feel less than someone else, which is one of the worst feelings a human being can have, what do we do? We drive further in our career so that we can buy more things so that you have to admire me. I was, we were in Old Littleton on a date on Friday night. I thought, these people are way too old to be driving slow down Old Littleton Boulevard still wanting you to look at them. Like, holly, like this is the definition of immaturity here. Um, Or or this one's another one. We feel wronged or judged. And so we turn it around and we play judge, which maybe I just did right then, judging other people, so that we feel better about ourselves. And that provides some um, form of comfort. We feel rejected, so we go to lust so that at least in our imaginations we can feel wanted. Whatever it might be, at the root of sin is the longing in the human heart for comfort. I'd actually like to give you a permission, a dangerous permission here for a minute. I don't want you to hear, you need to not take sin seriously. I'm saying precisely the opposite. You need to take it so seriously that you need to look at it for what it actually is. So often sin in our life are things, places, and actions where we are seeking comfort. And what true repentance is, is unmasking that thing or that person or that action and recognizing that can't bring you the comfort that you are actually looking for and to go to your Father in heaven for that comfort that you so desperately want. And so I want you to ask a question this week. I'd like you to invite the Holy Spirit to ask a question, a hard question. What am I seeking that's leading me to sin? What in me is so hurt or so ashamed that I am seeking comfort in this habitual sin that has me? And how can I plead with the Lord? that he would turn my gaze from finding comfort in this thing or this person or this action and to find my true identity, my true comfort, my true sense of wholeness and stability in him. This doesn't give you license to sin. This isn't, you know, some millennial saying, let's just take sin less seriously. No, it's saying take it so seriously that you ask the far harder question of what's going on eight layers deep in your heart that is driving you to find comfort in that which you know can't actually comfort you. And then to do the much harder work of repentance, of turning your gaze away from sin and towards your Father in heaven. What does it mean to be a disciple? It means to be the beloved child of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that by your life, by your death, by your resurrection, we might be raised into new life and called children of God. Spirit, would you reveal to us those parts of our lives where we are carrying shame or guilt or fear that is driving us to sin, Spirit, would you direct our gaze to the presence of our beloved Father who waits for us with arms wide open. To the glory of your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.